I do believe that preparation builds confidence and confidence builds success. And so for me, you know, certainly early on in my career as a young correspondent with so many famous people at NBC who had legendary careers, my confidence wasn't at its high. And so I thought, how can I be the smartest person in the room and know more than anybody else? And, you know, I just really did my homework. I really worked really hard to make sure I knew everything. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, this show might sound a bit different today because we're skimming from three different couches. The skim is continuing to work from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, Nora O'Donnell joins us on Skim from the Couch. She is the anchor and managing editor of the CBS Evening News, making her the third woman ever to solo anchor a network evening broadcast. Before taking the helm of the Evening News, she was the co-host of CBS This Morning for seven years. Nora, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thank you for having me. So we're going to start off with Skim Your Resume for us. Well, I went to Georgetown University. I was a philosophy major. I was interested in a lot of different things in college. So I had internships. I've always worked. And, you know, I worked at a law firm. I worked at the World Bank. And and then I interned at ABC News. And I think, you know, journalism really was what was the right fit for me. Just a deep curiosity about the news, a deep curiosity about world events and people. After graduating from college, I got a job at National Journal on a publication called The Hotline, which was the original kind of aggregator of news before the Huffington Post and and others got into the business of aggregating news, even like you guys in some ways. I remember it well. And that also was like a crash course in politics, too, because we would sum up every Senate and House race across the country, all the polling, you know, who all the key consultants were. So that really was a great crash course in politics. And then I got hired at NBC and MSNBC when I was 25 years old to be, you know, was one of the youngest correspondents in NBC history and had a great career at NBC and had three kids. And then we all work uh, in television news under what are like personal services contracts. All of us have anywhere from two to five year contracts. And so you know, when each of those contracts come up, you have an opportunity to reevaluate your next step. And CBS came to me with an incredible offer to be the chief White House correspondent for Obama's last term and to be the substitute anchor for Face the Nation. And I had always, you know, been ambitious about wanting to anchor a Sunday broadcast because I love politics. And so, you know, to be able to substitute for the legendary Bob Schieffer, I thought this is really an an excellent opportunity. So I joined CBS News and then kind of the rest is history. Should I keep going? No, that was perfect. So something you definitely don't know. I interned at NBC when I was 19 in the specials unit. And I was like my first week on the internship. So let's just say like day two or three. And you walked into the office. 
And you were the first professional famous news anchor I had ever seen in person. And I literally, I stopped breathing. I was so excited. All I wanted to do was to be a news anchor at the time. And I was so nervous. And this, when you walked out of the room, I asked one of the producers, I was like, what is she like? Do you work with her? I will never forget. They're like, she's the best of the best. And I was like, well, what makes her so good? And they said that she always does her homework. And I think about that a lot. And I'm curious, what is something that, you know, your fans and, and people like us, your big fans, what is something that we don't know about you? That we can't Google. <laughs> well, I wasn't as good about doing my homework in college. <laughs> and, I mean, I did just fine at Georgetown, but I do, I think, you know, certainly as a professional, that is true. I always did my homework because I do believe that preparation builds confidence and confidence builds success. And so for me, you know, certainly early on in my career as a young correspondent with so many famous people at NBC who had legendary careers, my confidence wasn't at its high. And so I thought, how can I be the smartest person in the room and know more than anybody else? And, you know, I just really did my homework. I really worked really hard to make sure I knew everything. The thing that people may not know about me, you know, I guess would be that I'm from a military family. You know, I mean, that certainly is on my resume, but it's the one thing I mentioned because, you know, I remember in covering certainly the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq after 9-11, a lot of people would say on television and Mike Barnacle on, on Morning Joe would say this a lot that, oh, you know, less than 1% of people have someone in the military so they didn't understand these wars. But I grew up in the military. You know, my father was drafted during the Vietnam War, stayed in for 30 years. I lived overseas. And so I really do have a, a deep appreciation for those who serve. My sister is a surgeon in the army. And so I do have a really keen sense of the sacrifice that many people go through. And I do, in some ways, I almost wish that it was mandatory, almost like in Israel, that we had to serve because I think, you know, certainly the discipline that they have is unlike anything I've seen, those who serve. Let's actually start with that because I think it's fascinating talking about how you grew up and living overseas. How did this love of news and, you know, growing up with that military background kind of come together for you? You know, I think one of the, it was first crystallized for me in some ways when Elena Nachmanoff, who is still the vice president of talent at NBC News, said to me when I met her when I was 25 years old, and she said, you know, we like hiring correspondents who have a, from a military background because they're very flexible and adaptable. They don't complain about being sent to different cities or states or around the world. They can talk to anybody because they've sort of been put in that situation where they have to be totally adaptable at a moment's notice. And that was the first time someone can really validated kind of my experience. And I thought, wow, I didn't realize that that's something, you know, a gift that my parents gave me because it wasn't always easy moving around, you know, with different sets of friends and wasn't easy on my, my mom, certainly picking up and moving around. And even though we were very lucky, we didn't move that much. So I think, you know, that's one of the things I hope that I'm flexible and adaptable in many ways. I'm, I can talk to a lot of different people, understand where they're, where they're coming from. I think that's a key component of being, you know, a journalist. And then the other thing is, I really appreciate public servants. And I mean those who serve in, in office as representatives, as senators, as those who work in government. So I don't come to you know, any administration with a cynical attitude. I say these people have given up a lot to have their name in the press, to be criticized, to be judged, to have to testify before Congress. 
I think having come from a military background, I do try and approach each of those people who serves in government with the appreciation that they're, they're coming to this to actually help their country. Whether they do that well or not, the press will hold them accountable. But I think that's why most people trust me to, to help tell their story, like Rick Bright, the whistleblower who we just did for 60 Minutes. I want to talk about the whistleblower. What is it like to be criticized by the president publicly? You know, because I've covered President Trump before, he's done it to me just, you know, uh, in person. It's interesting how much he closely follows everything that's said about him. So I think it, that's part of his operating mode to criticize publicly. He pushes back very, very strongly. I, it doesn't bother me at all, and I, and I don't respond to it because the facts speak for themselves. And I'm from the school of journalism where you keep your nose to the grindstone, and the story speaks for itself, and the journalism speaks for itself. And I'm not in the business of engaging with him. I'm, that's not my role. My role is to report the facts and ask tough questions and make sure that people feel like they trust the product. And, you know, when I took this job as the anchor of the CBS Evening News, I went back to look at a lot of what Walter Cronkite said. And one of the things he said is, journalism is what we need to make democracy work. Another way to say that is an informed electorate is what we need to make democracy work. And the electorate has to trust the journalists who deliver that news. And so I do take that responsibility very seriously. I do believe that journalism is in some ways a public service. I think we're almost in a public health service role right now in COVID-19. And so I don't engage, you know, when we get attacked. You know, we just we let those facts speak for themselves. The news business is notoriously competitive. As we talked about in your intro, there have been very few women who have been able to host their own evening news show, who have gotten as far as you've gotten and obviously has paved the way for people like Danielle and I to look up to. And I'm very curious how you navigated such a competitive environment when you were coming up and at the same time built a support network. Like everybody needs somebody to go to to vent, somebody to go to to fall apart to. What did that look like for you? You know, I think it's a really important question. And I think in many ways, the sisterhood just gets stronger. When I got the job at the CBS Evening News, Barbara Walter sent me a lovely note. Diane Sawyer sent me a lovely note. Katie Couric and I are very good friends. And, you know, she watches every night. <laughs> like a week ago, I winked at the end of the broadcast. And she said, were you winking at me? <laughs> I'm like, I'm, in, I'm impressed, Katie, that you stayed to the very end of the broadcast. So I think- um, I love that. You know, there's a, a deep appreciation for that. You know, Gail called me yesterday morning and was like, oh my gosh, the Rick Wright interview, it was so good on 60 Minutes. And I would, and you know, we were just chatting. I said, Gail, I gotta go, I gotta work out. She was like, what? So um, I think the sisterhood is strong. I think women have a deep appreciation of what one another has gone through. And so I appreciate that cheerleading. I guess the, I've never felt like I wasn't supported. I think the hardest thing is noticing how women are judged differently. And I do, I hesitate to bring attention to it, but I do think it's important to talk about because I think that women are judged quite differently. For some reason, it is insatiable for the tabloid press to suggest that there's some fight between women. You know, I admit, I, I believed it when they used to write about Barbara Walters and Diane Sawyer. Oh, they must not like each other, you know, or what's been written about me. I mean, some really petty, awful stuff. And, you know, I don't, I, the only thing I can think about is for some reason that is, it sells papers. But I think we have to make sure that as men and women, that we read 
these things with a critical eye and realize they're meant to sell papers or turn pages and they may not be true. And the reason that's important is because I believe that women don't want to run for office or don't want to be CEOs or be in the C-suite because they are afraid of being criticized. You know, I mean, there is also a strong correlation between the rise of social media and less women running for president of their student body class, even in high school and in college, because they are concerned about the criticism because it can be painful. And so we have to get over that and have kind of that rhinoceros skin that Eleanor Roosevelt talked about. I think that what you just said makes a lot of sense. Also, hearing you say it in the position that you're in, I'm like, yeah, I get it. You know, I'm just not going to read. I'm not going to go on Twitter and read the stuff that people say about us and get upset. But it's hard and it's hard to develop that. I also think in some ways we had an advantage where when you grow up in news, you're kind of tossed into this world and it helps you develop that skin or you're not going to work in the industry for very long. Looking at you now, it seems like just such a given that you have that confidence. But where does that come from? How did you develop it? Were you always like that, kind of letting the criticism roll off? No, I mean, it's certainly criticism still stings, you know, no doubt. I think confidence comes from a strong support system. You know, my mother has always said, make sure you build a strong support system around you. So the simplest explanation would be like your friends, you know, I mean, you reach out to your friends when you're feeling down or when something's gone wrong. So we do that in a personal setting, we need to do it in a professional setting and build a strong network of people around you who support you. And so, you know, I have a team of people say, don't respond to that or, you know, really highlight all the positive stuff or say, this is what we should focus on today. And I think that helps build confidence. But the most, the really the most important thing that helps me build confidence is the quality of my work, you know, and the quality of the interviews that we do and that people trust me and trust CBS News. What's your most favorite interview that you've done? You know, it's hard to pinpoint one, but I would say that Malala Yousafzai. You know, I can remember after 9-11, well, first of all, I remember Diane Sawyer going to Afghanistan before 9-11 and reading about women who wear burqas and thinking, I read about it and she did a special on it and thinking, God, this is something I knew nothing about. How do I not know anything about this? And then 9-11 happened, of course. And then I read about how many women in Pakistan and Afghanistan are illiterate, and not just women, men too. And so Malala became, you know, even before she won the Nobel Prize became, but certainly after, you know, she was nearly assassinated. She became for me someone who was a symbol of how the world needs to change. That you know, if you empower a girl, you change the world is the simple way that it has been put. And if you educate a girl, you change the world. And, you know, for a 16-year-old, she had the most incredible presence and confidence and sense of herself. And I thought, how does have someone have that at such a young age? And really spend your life promoting values, you know, because and that's where that confidence came from, I think, with her was a value that girls should be educated. Like that makes you stand tall. Yes, girls should be educated and should be you know, treated equally. So I think that is the most meaningful. I look at her as someone and just say, gosh, I'm so glad I met her at an early age at 16. And I hope I get to know her in 30 years. And I hope that someday she becomes, you know, this historical figure. She already is, but I mean, someone who can actually change the world. So maybe that is, and the other person too, I just love is Serena Williams, who we had interviewed, you know, when CBS used to air the U.S. Open, the U.S. Open winners used to come on the next morning 
And of course, seeing her in person, I thought this is the most powerful woman I've ever met. I mean, physically so powerful. And I was dumbstruck. I just didn't even, I mean, I've interviewed presidents and prime ministers and princes, and I just really didn't even know what to say to her. I was so, (laughs) so I love the idea that we can not only have power, you know, in our academic work and whatever we do, but then also have power of body and strength. And she also, to me, embodies that in a way that I think is really powerful. What are you like as a boss? That's a great question. I need a lot of research. So I think the simplest way to explain it is I like to know everything. I read a lot. I read six newspapers a day. I get, now I get, I used to, when I was in New York, I used to get six or seven hard copies. Now I get three hard copies at home and then I read the rest at at work. So I read a lot. So I really kind of, I think most folks who work with me know that I kind of, my mantra is sort of tell me something I don't know. So I want to know that nugget that I've missed in my reading. I have to say that my first job out of college was delivering the newspapers in front of the offices. And I remember your stack. There there were a lot of hard copies. Everyone had their exact, like, I need this and this and this order. And I I remember that. Yes. Danielle would have folded those nicer. (laughs) (laughs) They're all over my, uh, all over my desk here. You know, I would be a good question to ask other people, but I mean, I li- I read a lot. So there's a lot of research notes that I like binders with tabs, but I think, you know, and I, the only other thing I think is, and I'm speaking of, you know, those, my assistants who work with me, they know that I, that I'm not good at remembering birthdays, but I want to remember birthdays and, and things. So I always try and send birthday notes and baby gifts. So, you know, people who work with me know that uh, I need constant reminders about that stuff because it's a value that I like. I'm not good at executing it. So they know I need help, you know, executing those kinds of things. I want to talk a little bit more about, obviously, there's the role that you play as, as a journalist. And also there's the role that you play as a leader and a key figure at a news division. When you took over as the anchor of the evening news following a difficult time at CBS, some people at the top were let go because of inappropriate conduct or sexual misconduct, including your former co-anchor, Charlie Rose. Whether you expected to or not, you and your boss, Susan Zerinsky, you guys have represented you know, the future of a news division and, and a really a different time in news. How did you think about setting the tone, not just for the viewers, but for the people that were working for you guys every single day? Because watching it from the outside, it it seemed like there would be a great deal of leadership needed in that difficult time. Yeah, I did. I thought very seriously about it. I think that what I said on the air that morning, and then I repeated again when other instances happened at CBS News and there were there was also executive changes was that you know women cannot achieve full equality in the workplace until there's a reckoning and there has to be zero tolerance and i mean i was pretty direct i think is the way that i would put it on the air and i had friends look over exactly what i was going to say because i wanted every word to be perfect. And I wanted it to stand the test of time. I think people can Google it, but I think Oprah has commented about what I said, you know, on the air that morning. And I'm proud of what I said. And I'm really proud. And I'm really proud of, of CBS for making the changes that it did. And Susan Zerinsky is like no other boss that I've ever had in my entire life. 
you know, my mom always reminds she's like, you are so lucky to work for that Susan Zerinsky. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true. And you know what she does is that she not only is so involved in every detail, but she also leads with incredible heart. She sends emails saying, that was a great piece. You know, she constantly calls and checks in. She, after, um, you know, any big night or something like that, she'll call and say, put me on speakerphone. And then she'll speak to the entire crew about what a great job everything was. So I think the interesting thing that I've learned just now is that those instances are really, really hard, but the change and the growth that happens after is good. It's positive. It's right. You know, having Susan Zerinsky as, as the president of CBS News is truly it's the best moment in my in my career and I've had great bosses that are men too but I'm saying this is you know the reckoning that we went through uh has led to what is the most rewarding times ever in my career that's really great and uh we know Susan as well and she's amazing and by the way when she when she was you know moving into that role there was ridiculous criticism of her true and she's to me is is bulletproof I mean she's really honestly there's she's been at at CBS for 45 years. She is universally beloved by everyone, you know? We are going to move to our lightning round. It's very difficult. You're going to have to respond very quickly to our rapid fire questions. You have worked on morning and evening TV. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Morning person. What time do you get up? Now I get up at like 6.30, which is late. What's replaced your morning commute? Working out almost every day. Last TV show you streamed or binge watch? Ozarks, season three. I had already watched the other two seasons. You are married to a chef. Do you ever cook? I do. Does he judge your food? I don't think he eats it. <laughs> <laughs> that seems fair. <laughs> well, I, I make like banana bread and stuff like that. Who's on your bucket list to interview? Kim Jong-un has always been on my bucket list and Justin Timberlake, which, you know, oh. surprisingly is actually a very difficult interview to get. That's long been on my interview because I think he's incredibly talented. It's a and mine as well. I have a lot of questions on that one. <laughs> Me too. What is the worst professional mistake you've ever made? Oh, I don't know. I think I've just forgotten it. I mean, I don't dwell on those things. My husband always says no regrets. So I can't remember it. I'm sure I've made many. I'm sure. When's the last time you negotiated for yourself? Every day. Every day. What is your shameless plug? To watch the CBS Evening News, which I do believe is the best curated, you know, 30 minutes of national news in America. Cora, such a uh, pleasure and honor to interview you. So thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh, I love you guys. I need to interview (laughs) you. This was so much fun. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. My name is Sashi Chandran, and I'm founder and CEO of Tea Drops. And Tea Drops makes an assortment of bagless, whole leaf, dissolvable teas. 
We are based in Los Angeles, California. Tea Drops is primarily e-commerce and we're really lucky to have that channel because that enables us to still operate our and because we are considered an essential since we're a food product, we've been able to operate and maintain our e-commerce business, our website and Amazon. However, once this hit, we went in pure preservation mode. Even before COVID hit, we had a we had a goal towards profitability this year and that and COVID just already that need just because we knew that our grocery retail channels that we were going to launch in this year were going to suffer a lot. So we immediately reduced our headcount. We all took collective salary cuts across the team. We did away with operating expenses that we knew we could easily slash like an office lease and travel, trade shows, things that were easy to cut out. So we were able to reduce our overall budget pretty significantly and make the hard decisions early on so that we could band together and know that this is this was the storm we were going to weather together as a team. You know, I don't think as a, as a business owner or founder leader, you have to have all the answers. And so I think just being very transparent, like we just had a meeting yesterday. What do you guys think about going back to an office eventually? How does that feel? Um, and just having really honest, transparent discussions early on, I feel has been the most effective for me. Now more than ever, we need this idea of, of community and connection to one another. And the reason I started Tea Drops is because I saw tea as this vehicle and forum for and a, and a great ritual for connection to others. And even if we are all social distancing, I think now more than ever, we can think about community in a different way. And now we have the luxury of time to reach out to one another and support one another. And so I would invite the skin community to, to take a look at the Tea Drops community and also as use this as a reminder to connect with your loved ones, connect with people you haven't talked to in a long time and form that connection. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all of the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.